0: Hey, this is Andy Jenkins. I'm back at it. Welcome again to the Overflow Podcast. If you've been here a while or uh, whether you're just kind of dropping in for the first time, uh, welcome. Uh, for the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about this idea uh, that really I've been pushing around, kicking around in my head for, uh, gee, this one really for the last couple years. Uh, I, I'm getting better language for it. I'm getting a more concise way to say it. Um, but it it really kind of um, expands this idea that I grew up with, and the idea is this: is that Jesus is savior, that Jesus is is your savior. I, I mean, for goodness' sake, you know the name Jesus actually means salvation. He he was named salvation. Often we name kids uh, the names that we want them to have because we believe that those names stand for something. Those names emblemize. Uh, something uh, for for instance, my parents, uh, I'm told, named me Andrew uh, because uh, back when you look in the Bible, the guy that you see, the disciple you see, named Andrew, is the one who just about every time you see him, he's bringing people to Jesus, and that's really something that they wanted to impart to me. You know, you see these names over and over. Sometimes we name people after. Uh, parents or grandparents uh, to carry on a legacy because we want them to carry on a specific tradition. Uh, Sometimes we want to honor someone. Sometimes we name people. And in the ancient world particularly, they named people based on the identity, the role that they wanted those people to carry. This is why Peter was uh, name changed from uh, Cephas, which means shifting sand, to Peter Petra, which means rock. He was a reed, a twig, flimsy, and uh, and and my goodness, this is a beautiful lesson that we'll come back to at some point in the future, just about how Jesus calls that identity forth before we really even see uh, the truth, the reality, the ramifications of it. Jesus really, here's the word. He really prophesies, projects that one into the future when he names Peter. Uh, as the rock because that's what he would become. He would become the bedrock upon which the other disciples really could rely upon in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and uh, historically he really became a rock there in the early church and so we see that uh, perfectly work out there with him. Now Jesus in the same way he was named Yeshua, he was named salvation because really that's what that's what He was going to do. That's what He does. Salvation is not just His name. It is His identity. In fact, I posted on Instagram, on Facebook, just a little, I don't even know if you'd call it a meme if it doesn't have a person or an image. It was just text there that salvation isn't just Jesus' name. It is His identity. its It's who He is. It is the core. Uh, You see this, uh, football season will come up in the next couple months, and we'll see this in end zones, Jesus saves. Uh, We'll see it um, over and over and over in Bible verses and on t-shirts and this idea of salvation being who Jesus is. Well, so often, uh, I was at church this last weekend, and the guy that was teaching there, his name's Wes, Wes Springer, uh, an amazing guy. Uh, Wes had this idea that he communicated that so often we focus on what Jesus saves us from. What he saves us from. Now, you know, it's important that we understand that Jesus saves us from certain things. But Colossians really says this, that you've been transferred from the dominion of darkness and you've been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You've been rescued away from something. And you and I could go through that list and we could talk about what it was that Jesus saved us from. We would have a list of things He saved us from. And He conveys us to. He moves us into something that He saves us to. And it's important that we actually define what He saves us to. And so for the next couple minutes here, what I want to do is I want to pull out some information that I've taught in the healing workshop before Um, And maybe you've seen that. You've seen it when I've taught it in uh, just a random video online on Facebook Live. You've seen it maybe in the full-blown live workshop. Uh, You've seen it in the online version of the workshop. You've seen it even maybe in just some of the online versions that we'll do where we will actually teach live these little snips for um, really about an hour. We just kind of go on and and dive deep into some of the most important topics from the full-blown weekend workshop. It's this idea that Jesus saves us to a whole pile of things. Now, in the Greek language, that's the language of the New Testament, the word that you're most often going to see translated in the English as saved is this word sozo. There's an entire ministry built around this that we see popping up uh, based out of Bethel Church in Reading. Uh, we see, uh, there's one, there's a local expression of it here in Birmingham, Alabama, Sozo. It means saved, healed, delivered. It's an incredible ministry. I've had a friend that led this ministry before. I've participated in the training of this ministry. Um, it is incredible. And it, and it comes off of that word, not here to talk about the ministry, but it comes off that word that we so often see in the New Testament that's translated as saved in the English language. But that word, it means so much more than just saved from sin. And and what I want you to do today is is I want to convey to you, I want to relay to you really what salvation is and what Jesus does because Jesus has been radically more successful than I grew up actually being taught. Um, Nobody withheld the information from me on purpose, but so often I think we focus on what Jesus has saved us from instead of what Jesus saves us to. And when you look at what Jesus saves you from, you end up focusing really on sin, or you end up focusing on the devil. And uh, if you grew up in a Baptist church like I did, or if you grew up in a church that was more, let's just say, head-centered, so that would be Baptist, that would be Presbyterian, and and I understand I'm just using kind of caricatures right here, so this isn't true for everyone. This is just kind of a stereotype, which helps us kind of have some hangers to set our theology on. Uh, If you grew up in a more head centered church, you probably focused on the fact that Jesus saved you from sin. If you grew up in a more charismatic, a more heart or emotion-driven church, and and I'm not point painting either one of those as if those are bad things. I, I think we need the best of the head world, and we need the best of the heart and emotion world. Like if you could get these two sides together and actually take the best of both and realize that we're on the same team, and let's all put all this together, it would be amazing. All right. So if you grew up in that charismatic Pentecostal side, you focused on the heart side, uh, the emotion side. You probably focused on the fact, not that Jesus saved you from sin, but He saved you from Satan. He saved you from the devil. And so, you see lots of talk about avoiding sin in head-centered churches. Again, Baptist Presbyterian. You see lots of talk about avoiding the devil or even rolling up your sleeves and fighting the devil. And, I mean, goodness, they'll cast out a demon at the drop of a hat in a more Pentecostal charismatic church. Here's the deal: We don't want to focus on what Jesus saves us from; we want to look at what Jesus saves us to. What He provides, because again, He's been so incredibly successful. And I, I would think of it maybe like this: When when I was first born, my mom was working at the Federal Reserve, and the way they taught people at the Fed. And she was in Fort Worth. Is where I was born, um, so there in the Dallas area. Um, the way they taught people to identify counterfeit currency was was not by showing them all of the counterfeits that were out there, not showing them all of the things that really they wanted to avoid, in other words. Like, we want to avoid sin. We want to avoid Satan. We we weren't taught, um, or they weren't taught, how to... um, detect counterfeits by looking at all of the possible counterfeits. They were taught to avoid counterfeits by actually studying what real currency was like. By studying what real, let's just use our language here, by studying what real salvation was like. And when we see everything that Jesus has provided for us, when we look at what He's brought us into... Because He's transferred us out of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son is what the Father's done. When we look at the things that He saved us to, all of a sudden those other things fall away. Now, I would say this too before I kind of get into some of the text here of the Scripture is um, for certain when Jesus is walking along planet earth as a man and when He is doing His three, three and a half year run of ministry, we do know and we do see that Jesus often comes in contact with sin. And repeatedly, he loves the sinner, um, doesn't love the sin, but um, there's no issue he has with going where people are doing messed up, jacked up things and loving those people right into the Father's embrace. Uh, So you can see this with women caught in adultery with the woman of the street with tax collectors who were thieves with sinners, with the man who died on the cross with him that was welcomed into paradise that same day. Um, we see Jesus come in contact with sin, but he doesn't go looking for it. He's looking to express salvation. At the same time, we also see Jesus come in contact with the devil, with demons, with Satan, but he's not looking for Satan or demons. When he does this thing, yes, he's going to run into them, and when he does, he just dispenses them with spiritual truth, and with supernatural power. But what Jesus is doing is He is focusing on the thing that He came to do. He's focusing on salvation. He's focusing on the gift, the outflow, the overflow of His identity, which is His, his very name means it. Jesus means Yeshua, means salvation. He is the one who brings deliverance. He is the one that brings total salvation. So I I, I want to show you what He saves us to, and I don't want to do this by a a way of just a string of stories in the Bible. Oftentimes you read the Bible and we focus on, particularly in the Gospels, where there's just story after story after story after story of things Jesus did. It's easy to look at these, and it's easy to, uh, how do you say it, it's easy to get caught up in one story, one episode, and to study it, to dissect it, as if it's disconnected from the next story or the previous story. And so often, if if we'll kind of take the airplane and fly a little bit higher, and instead of just kind of flying at 20 feet, 30 feet, just kind of looking over the whole text there, if we'll we'll go up a little bit higher, if we'll go to 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 30,000 feet, and look at how several stories fit together, if we'll look at how several chapters fit together. You realize that these chapters and verses were added later, that when the original authors wrote the text, they were just writing the story. They were just writing their sentences. They were just writing um, the ideas that, empowered by the Holy Spirit for sure, inspired by the Spirit to convey these, they they were just writing the sentences and the words. They weren't writing numbers. Those were added later for ease. Um, Thank goodness. And they were added for ease later to where we we could find and we could communicate certain ideas and we could say hey let's let's look at this particular sentence in the bible and we could easily find it because we had uh, named the book we had named the chapter and we had numbered the letter and and so we could easily reference any sentence in the bible so it's a very beautiful thing that we have that but those weren't originally there those were later editions that editors added And so sometimes it's helpful to fly above those numbers, and it's helpful to get out of that structure that we laid on it and look at the bigger narrative of what the authors were doing. And when we go to the book of Luke, we see this idea where John the Baptist is there. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. He's Jesus' cousin. And John the Baptist is about to be executed for his faith. And Jesus is really commending John. He's endorsing John the Baptist, and he's talking about how grateful he is for John. And in the same breath, he lets us know that something different is happening. Okay, and so in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, he says something like this. Um, In fact, let me back up to verse 27. Uh, He says that John is the one of whom it was written, and he quotes the book of Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? Now, that's what John the Baptist did for Jesus. He told everyone about the Messiah that's coming and and about the one whom the Spirit of God would rest upon. He was referring everyone to Christ. And in verse 28, Jesus says this. Now, he's, he's, he's going to make a great statement here that we're going to unpack for a little bit. I tell you this. Among those born of a woman, none is greater than John. And so Jesus just said, among those that are born, that are living, of any men that you've ever met, John is the tops, like John is the pinnacle at this point. And then Jesus continues. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he is. So John's the greatest man that's lived so far yet I tell you this that the kingdom is now present the kingdom is here okay when when Jesus came Jesus said the time is now and the kingdom is here and Jesus is saying the one who comes into the kingdom and who is the least in that kingdom is greater than the greatest man who's lived up until now here's what's going on John the Baptist was the last of the prophets of the Old covenant. Now, the Old Covenant was you get what you deserve. The Old Covenant was if you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're radically cursed. The New Covenant was if you obey, you're blessed. But by the way, Jesus has completed all of the obedience for you. And as far as the cursing goes, Christ became a curse on the cross for you, taking our curse for us. Now all of God's promises aren't, yes, if you obey, all of our Promises are, as Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, all of his promises are yes, they're amen. And so this new thing has come in. This gospel of the kingdom is now ushered in, and it's different. It's not going to be a covenant marked by obedience or disobedience. It's going to be a covenant marked by Christ's obedience being fulfilled, and it's going to be a covenant marked by supernatural power. It's going to be a covenant marked by supernatural provision, it's going to be a covenant marked by, well, um, let me just show you, Uh, um, let me just show you kind of of how it unfolds. Because what happens is um, Jesus is explaining all of this, and He's explaining how things are going to unfold, and um, one of the Pharisees in verse 36 asked Jesus to dine with him. So he goes into that Pharisee's house. Okay, So it's showing you Jesus will hang out with uh, religious zealots, and he'll hang out with the biggest sinners. So he came for all people. If you're on the religious spectrum, he came for you. He doesn't care if you're a legalist. He doesn't care if you're an extreme sinner on the other end. He came to reconcile all people to himself. All people need the radical grace of their Heavenly Father. So the Scripture says, "...while he's there, behold a woman of the city..." was a sinner. You and I know what that means. She's a prostitute. Uh, She learned that he's reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house. That's how they would eat in the ancient world. They'd kind of lean over on their side. Um, And so he's there and she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him at his feet because they'd have their head towards the table and their feet kind of uh, laying away from the table. So the table would be very low to the ground. Um, standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, right here, there's going to be a big issue. This woman is, is a prostitute. She has showed up to this house uninvited. She has crashed the dinner party with the religious elite of all people. And so you know exactly where this thing is going to go. Um, and in fact, you, you just see it. Uh, the Pharisees, right there in verse thirty-nine, they start saying, "Well, well, goodness! If if he knew like what kind of woman this was, he 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 wouldn't even touch her because they had this idea that if something that was quote unclean, and they um, routinely talked about people who they didn't believe were acceptable by God as being unclean, this woman, um, if he knew what she was really like." Um, then he he would he would shun her, he would push himself away from her. Um, well, Jesus in response talks about this great parable of forgiveness that you should read um, later on, and he talks about he he shames in a nice way the Pharisee he says, "Look, when I came in here, you didn't anoint my feet, you didn't anoint my head, um, but this woman has overwhelmingly graced me." Um, which which by the way, you you know exactly where she earned this money, right? This wasn't money that was earned. Um, honestly, this wasn't money that she inherited. Um, this is money that she got by her her trade, by selling herself. And and Jesus accepts this gift. And he looks at her. And and here's what's incredible. He says to the woman in verse 50. He says he says to the woman, "Go in peace. Your faith has here's the translation." saved you go in peace your faith has sozo you sozo now we translate it saved and when we read that passage and we talk about that passage we we nail it correctly we say well well Jesus has just forgiven her sin because um, in fact he just sets it up in the context verse 27 he says I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much He who is forgiven little loves little. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. So in the context of this passage, Jesus has just forgiven sin. And this is usually where we limit salvation. But the word that Luke is using right here, To express the way that the kingdom of God is. It's not just repenting of actions like John the Baptist. He said, repent, 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 you know, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent, repent, repent. Jesus actually uses this new idea of the kingdom and says, sozo is here. Sozo has happened. And this word sozo, clearly it refers to the forgiveness of sins. And so, what is one of the things Jesus provides? What is it that you are saved to? You are saved to a clear conscience. You are saved to forgiveness. You are saved from sin. You are saved to forgiveness. Now, what's incredible is Jesus continues um, teaching the disciples. And so, he goes on and we see um, and, and learn some incredible things in the next passage. Uh, we, we, we learn that. Um, A crowd gathers together and he teaches about the parable of the sower and the seeds. And um, we learn uh, who are supporting Jesus that some wealthy women are supporting Jesus' ministry. We learn more about parables. And then this great passage happens in Luke chapter 7, verse, um, sorry, Luke chapter 8, verse 22. It says, One day he got into a boat and he said to his disciples, let us cross to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. Now, pause right there. Here's what's amazing. is Every time Jesus tells the disciples to get into a boat, you know it's about to happen. Every single time he tells them to get into a boat, there's this storm that comes. Okay, okay so a little footnote. Like if Jesus ever tells you to get into a boat, obviously get into the boat, but just expect that there's going to be a storm. So they, they get in, um, they set out, and he falls asleep. And then a windstorm comes down on the lake, and they're filling with water, and they're in danger. So th- th- these are trained seamen, trained fishermen, and they're afraid for their life. So in verse 24 of Luke chapter 8, they awake Jesus. They wake Him up, and they say, Master, Master, we're perishing. Um, I-, I like the translation. In fact, I'm just going to flip in my Bible. You can hear it flipping right here. So like I'm, I'm straight in the pages of the printed Here, when Matthew, who was on the boat, records the story. Okay, Luke probably not on the boat. Luke came later. He's recounting the story. Uh, Matthew was on the boat. He says in verse 24 of, of Matthew 8 Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and they awoke him, saying, Get this, they awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are dying, we are perishing. Jesus woke up. Why are you afraid, you have little faith? Then he arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind, even the sea, obeys him? Um, master, master, sozo us, is what they say. Like, there's that word, sozo. It, it's the same word that Jesus used of the woman of the street when he said, your sins are forgiven, you've been saved, you've been so and here Jesus uses it when he's talking to guys who are in a storm at sea. Now, I don't think that the men there who were waking Jesus up were waking him up for the forgiveness of their sins. They, they weren't waking him up to do this last rites type thing. Uh, hey Jesus, get up and absolve us of our sins because we're about to die and we don't want to enter into eternity with unconfessed sin. Uh, you, you know, in another uh, podcast episode, we actually talked about the idea of the forgiveness of sins and we talked about confession, um, how it's this beautiful thing, but so often we misunderstand what it's really for. It's for us, not not for God. God's already forgiven your sin; He's already forgotten your sin. He's not even holding future sins against you if you forget that go back and and just listen back a few episodes go to the podcast on confession. what's happening is they are about to die and they are praying for physical safety and here's what I see. In this, is that salvation is so full that salvation doesn't just forgive us of our sins and help us to miss hell and make heaven. Salvation also encompasses the physical world in which we live. Like Jesus makes things, let's just read it for what it says Jesus makes things safer. Um, When the gospel moves into a city, or the gospel moves into a neighborhood, or the gospel moves into your home, things get physically safer. Like um, when the gospel moves into a city, here's what I think crime should go down. We actually saw that in Birmingham. Um, Several years ago, homicides were up in the hundreds each year. And then there was this movement where people started praying, and crime started dropping. Violent crime started dropping by double digits. And the police chief continues praying for crime to drop, for violent crime to descend, for the numbers to decline. And year after year after year, the numbers keep going down. When people come in with the gospel, salvation includes physical safety. Now... Yes, I don't have all the answers. Sometimes people aren't healed. Sometimes people do die. Um, But when those things happen, we shouldn't just insert uh, a tidy answer and say, well, obviously the gospel doesn't include this. Salvation doesn't include this because we see an exception to the norm right there. What we do is we just wrestle with the tension of it and wrestle with, goodness, um, sometimes things happen. A lot of times things happen that fall outside of the parameters of what we see as God's plan, of God's ideal. But we still contend for, we still fight for the ideal now. Right? So that there it is. Salvation includes physical safety. Um, let me give you another one because if, if you read the story, what happens is the storm abates; it's gone. The disciples are flabbergasted, shocked that it does, and then they they come to the opposite side of the sea that they had just traveled on, and they they step into the country um, opposite Galilee, and the story unfolds. what happens is they apparently come near some tombs, and there's a man who was tormented with demons that rushes out and greets them, and he sees Jesus. And um, he cries out, he falls down before Jesus, and, and just exclaims with this loud voice, What do you have to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment us. And so, Jesus is there. Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Now, now this is a man that we read was kept under guard by the locals. He had often been bound with shackles, with chains, but he would break loose of those chains. Uh, The demons had really driven him out of town into the desert, into the tomb areas. And in verse 30 of Luke chapter 8, Jesus actually asked the man, What is your name? He converses with the man. And the man tells him, My my name's Legion. For there were many demons that were inside of him. Now, a legion was a Roman garrison that had upwards of, depending on who you read, 2,000 troops. And so some commentators think, Well, you know it's thousands of demons inside this man. Um, I, I don't I don't know M- maybe that's what's going on here. We, we know it's a lot. We know this man's tormented. We know that it's spiritual oppression. We, we don't necessarily have to get caught up on the number or target the number to get the core message here. Um, but these demons begin begging Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. So, like they know where the end of all of this heads. And so they look up, and in verse 32, we we read that there's a large herd of pigs that are feeding there on the hillside that's right beside the sea. And so these demons actually beg Jesus to let them enter into the pigs, and Jesus gives them permission. And so the demons come out of the man, they enter the pigs, the pigs then rush down to the steep bank, and then the pigs drown, and that's the end of them. Now here's what's amazing. The herdsmen of those pigs are there. They see it all happen they know what this man's like you know it's almost like they're herding the pigs tending the pigs with you know one eye on the pigs and one eye on this man all the time and so they immediately flee they run away they're scared they're terrified they they just kind of leave everything and they go tell people in the city that's nearby and then people in the city rush out to see what's happening and when they come out here to see what's happening they see the guy who had been demon possessed Um, By the way, some translations of this say this man regularly ripped off his clothes. And so right here, Luke makes the point that the man is fully clothed. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, which would be really a euphemism for he is learning from Jesus. He is being taught like a disciple by Jesus in that moment. Jesus is empowering this man and speaking identity over who this man is that had been spiritually tormented. Uh, He's there. And they all marvel, and Luke tells us that they're afraid. (laughs) No joke, what kind of power is this? And then those who had seen it, verse 36, I'm just going to kind of read it here. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been, here's the word, sozo. They marvel, and they tell the story, they recount the narrative of how this man had been made Sozo, had been made, your translation of Scripture there may say, had been made well. And and what we get there and and what we see is that it's it's not just physical safety, uh, as we saw in the story of the storm at sea. It's not just the idea of his sins are forgiven, though that probably happened in all of this. In fact, that would be implied that this happened because the man is sitting at Jesus' feet, which is a euphemism for he's learning from the rabbi. What we see here is that this man has been spiritually freed. There is spiritual deliverance, spiritual freedom. I would even say, take it um, in the whole package, there's emotional release in the whole gospel of Sozo, like Jesus provides so much more than we typically think. He provides total emotional, spiritual, and, and I'm not saying these are the same thing. They could be working together. They could be working separately. We we often see them in the same package together, though. He provides that freedom. So, so I would say if you're spiritually tormented, maybe it's nightmares. Maybe it is the voice of accusation from the enemy, continually calling back, reminding you of the things that you've done. Maybe it is um, accusations of just you'll never amount to anything. Maybe it is just this overwhelming sense of guilt and condemnation that is not your Heavenly Father. It is the enemy. Or, Or maybe it is even something has just spiritually attached itself to you. There is freedom. There is sozo. Jesus has successfully, it says in the book of Colossians, stripped the enemy of his power. Now he has all authority. And we can leverage, we can access that power. That is part of the salvation that he offers. That is part of his identity of who he is and what he does. Um, Well, if we read on. There's this other story that happens in Luke chapter eight verse forty. I'm, I'm just reading story after story after story, just referring you to the whole narrative. Again, we started this by saying um, that the least in the kingdom now is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest man, because John was under the old covenant of works of law, and now we're in a new covenant that has started. Um, and and maybe we'll do a lesson in the future about when does the Old Covenant stop and when does the New One start. We're under a new covenant of grace and of supernatural empowerment. And so, um, Jesus returns is what happens in Luke chapter 8, verse 40, and a crowd comes to Him. Everywhere He went, there were crowds. They're all waiting for Him. And then a man named Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, comes up to him. So, so here we're seeing it that Jesus um, deals with a woman of the street, a prostitute comes to him. Jesus deals with um, the Pharisees and dines with them. Jesus deals with his disciples. Jesus deals with people who are spiritually oppressed. Jesus, in other words, will relate to anyone in any life situation. There's no one Jesus won't connect with. And so, the ruler of the synagogue comes up to him, falls at Jesus's feet, and begs Jesus to come to his house. Uh, We read in the story, verse 42, that Jesus' uh, new friend, Jairus, had a daughter that was about 12, and she was sick. She's on her deathbed. She's dying. So Jesus, uh, He agrees. He says, I'll I'll come with you. And and while He's there, though, there's this crowd that's just pressing in on Jesus. And and we read, I'm I'm just going to read the text here, in verse 43, there's a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years, same age as the daughter, incidentally. And she had spent all that she had on physicians, though she could not be healed by anyone. Um, she came up behind Jesus, and she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. So it's it's almost like this woman has um, endometriosis, or she has some other um, some other vaginal problem, something uh, menstrual that would be an issue that might be um common to women, only not men who are physically um, ill. And, and Jesus takes great care on her. Now, footnote, um, in that culture, women were second-rate citizens, so she should have culturally um, been excluded from Him, though we see Jesus doesn't exclude women. Uh, she has a flow of blood which would make her ceremonially unclean, she should then therefore be excluded. Although we know Jesus doesn't exclude anyone. She comes and she just wants to touch just the edge of Him. Now, here's what's amazing. Jesus has the crowd pressing in on Him. No doubt, uh, dozens of people are touching Him at the time. But Jesus immediately perceives something different with this touch of faith. He says, verse 45, Who touched me? They all deny it. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, Hey, I mean, everybody's obviously bumping around. Master, the crowd surround you, he says, and they're pressing in on you. Verse 46, but Jesus says, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out for me. Like, he's that in tune with the spirit and with the supernatural that he sees and senses when somebody leverages and accesses. It's amazing. So when the woman saw that it's not hidden, like somehow he's going to figure this out. She trembles. She falls down before him. Just like the ruler of the synagogue. Bo- both people falling down before him. And she just declares. She admits in the presence of everyone there why she touched him. Now think about this. Just admitting in front of everyone. Nobody would have had to know the nature of that illness. Right? She, she could have kept this one private. This wasn't uh, like she couldn't walk and needs a cane. Uh, this wasn't like she had leprosy and you couldn't deny it in her skin. This wasn't like she was bent over with a hunched back like others that we see Jesus healed. This wasn't like she was paralyzed. But she just declares in the presence of everyone why she touched Him and how she had immediately been healed. Like Jesus felt the power go out. She felt the power come in. And Jesus says to her, now here's the amazing verse that I want you to pick up. It's Luke 8:48. He says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you sozo. Daughter, your faith has made you, we translate it well. Daughter, your faith has made you healed. Daughter, your faith has made you sozo. Go in peace. Now what's the use of the word there? The use of the word is physical healing. Like in the work that Jesus came to do, in the salvation that He came to offer, there is there's physical healing. Like, Do you realize in heaven there's not physical sickness? In heaven, there's not physical danger like that boat that we read about. In heaven, there's not sin. It's forgiven. In heaven, there's not spiritual torment. it's It's gone. The demons are in the, they, they knew, they're headed to the abyss in the story. In heaven, there are none of those things. In the kingdom, everything is right. And when Jesus come and the kingdom is present, and he says, pray for your kingdom come. And when he says things like the kingdom of God is within you, all of these things are within access, right? Now, I'm not going to give you a lesson here on physical healing because um, I talk about that and teach that in other places. And uh, we could cover a whole lesson. In fact, we will at some point cover a whole lesson just on, on physical healing. But I want you to see that it is part of what Jesus came to do. It is part of what, we, what he provides. Now the story goes on. Um, while he's still speaking in verse 49, someone from the ruler of the synagogue's house comes and tells the ruler of the synagogue, hey, don't bother Jesus any longer because your daughter has died. Um, Jesus, he hears this. He overhears the conversation. And he looks at them. He says, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. Now hang on to that sentence right there. In verse 50, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be made, here's the word he uses, she will be made sozo. So she's dead, yet sozo is about to happen. So Jesus goes to the house, he allows no one to enter with him except for Peter and James and John, and of course the mother and father of the child. Everybody's weeping and mourning for the woman, for the girl already. He tells them, don't weep, she's not dead, even though... She is dead. But Jesus is calling into the present something from the future, something that he sees, the reality of the kingdom. And so he says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. They laugh at him because they know she's dead, is what Luke says. Luke confirms. Luke, by the way, is a physician. And so Luke would know, hey, she's dead. So he puts all the mourners out. He takes her by the hand. He calls to her and says, little child, I say to you, arise. And immediately her spirit returns to her she had been dead. Her spirit returns to her. She gets up at once, and then he directs that something should be given her to eat. So they know that she's not a ghost. She is doing the things that people who are living do. The parents are amazed. Right there, that phrase, verse 49, verse 50. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be made so-so. What was she being made? She was being made alive. Okay, so you see it. You, You see the passage here. Like, Jesus comes... And he's been so much more successful. We we fly over and we see all of the stories, just story after story. By the way, I'm flipping through my Bible because I want to show you a few more verses. And it's almost like Jesus says to everyone that's there, just to kind of go back to the beginning of kind of where I started with here, he says to everyone, hey, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He's the greatest man so far but the least in the kingdom has something greater in them than even John had because they have access to things that John only looked into the future hoping to see. Like John knew that when the Messiah came that the deaf would hear, the lame would walk. Um, he knew all of these things would happen. You know, the blind are going to receive their sight, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Like he, he knew all this, but he, he simply longed to see it. And now, the greatest man who is here, John, has given way to the Messiah to Christ, whose identity, whose name means salvation, who then imparts salvation, yet that salvation is supernaturally loaded with power. And it is stronger, it is bigger, it is more grand than we thought. And it includes things like the forgiveness of sins. It includes things like physical safety, you know, that storm at sea. It includes things like spiritual deliverance, spiritual freedom. It includes things like... Physical healing, it includes things like even the raising of the dead. We've, we've seen all of these things. You've probably seen all of these things. And even if you've not seen somebody physically raised from the dead, you've seen somebody, we, we've seen people who have clinically died in our family that were dead. You've probably seen somebody who was knocking on death's door, and they're back. And years later, they've been given a new chance, a second chance. This is all part of the grand plan of Jesus when He brings the kingdom forth. Now here's what's incredible. After Jesus just kind of outlines all of these episodes, which weren't just stories, these are things that he really did. Luke is recounting the stories in this order to show us something. Instantly after this, after he raises that child to life, after he sozos her, it says that he calls the 12 together. I'm in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. He calls the 12 together, he gives them power and authority. He basically empowers them to walk in and to do everything that He did. And they do. And then what's incredible is some of it goes well, some of it doesn't. They learn some lessons. They argue about who's the greatest. They're they're figuring it out. They're, They're out there kind of trying their best take to do everything Jesus has empowered them to do, if you read the story. And then in Luke chapter 10, after this, Jesus appoints 72 more. And He sends them out presumably with the same power that he gave the original 12. And then it gets amazing, because if you read the end of the Gospel, if you read the end of this narrative, he then imparts that Holy Spirit to every believer to live out, to not just receive the things, the salvation that he came to give, but to be empowered with that same identity and that same gift to impart that to other people. It's an incredible story. Why, um... I want to kind of wrap out with maybe two verses. First um, Timothy, First Timothy, First Timothy two. Paul says, "I urge you that prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, for people in high positions, um, that we may lead, lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly, dignified." In every way, here's the great verse, This is good, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, that we're praying the kingdom forth, is what he's saying, that we're bringing this salvation. This is good in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. All people to be, I used to limit that and say, Well, God just wants everyone's sins forgiven. Yeah, yeah, He does. I mean, goodness. Um, he's forgiven everyone on the cross. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. Like, that's done. Forgiveness is extended. But it's not just that. He wants all people to be saved and, and to come to knowledge of the truth and to come to this working experience of that salvation and to come to this encounter with forgiveness not just to be forgiven he's forgiven he's extended that but to receive it to receive uh, spiritual freedom to receive physical safety to receive physical healing to receive if they need it even being raised from the dead i like this other verse i'm, I'm just flipping in my bible you can hear the pages like that's a straight page right there you know communicating on the internet but paper 1 Timothy 4 9, this saying is trustworthy. This saying is deserving of full acceptance. I'm just reading Paul. He says, To this end we toil and we strive, like we work, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He's the savior of all of all people. Like, there's no person. Remember I just showed you, Jesus connects with religious zealots, women of the street, the disciples, spiritually oppressed, burdened people, the poor, the leper, the tired. I mean, like, you could just read off the Statue of Liberty, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to be free. Like, that's the method. Like, He's the Savior of all people. Like, this sozo is for all people. This salvation is for all, particularly those who believe. And so often I think, you know, I've been in churches before where people were, this, this isn't a slam, people were legitimately concerned, they're legitimately trying to figure out that if we emphasize miracles, if we emphasize spiritual freedom, even emotional deliverance, emotional health, if we emphasize um, uh, physical safety, that somehow it minimizes the gift of forgiveness. Um, and don't misunderstand, like forgiveness and guilt and condemnation is the big work. In fact, it's so big that I've I've even seen it a lot of times. If people get rid of the condemnation, if they get rid of the guilt, the shame, that a lot of times these other physical issues just kind of disappear. Like sometimes those things are just physical symptoms of the guilt and condemnation, the lack of forgiveness expressing itself, manifesting. People sometimes fear, though, well-meaning religious people, that if we emphasize other things, that we're relegating forgiveness to a secondary status. And, And I would say absolutely not. If anything, we are amplifying everything that Jesus came to do. We're amplifying how successful He was on the cross. And I would maybe liken it to this. Every Christmas, my kids get multiple gifts. They're all from me. They're all from my wife, from Christy, their mom. And when they come downstairs on Christmas morning, we don't hope that they just take the one gift. We don't even hope that they take our favorite gift, whatever is our favorite, or whichever one of these would be God's favorite. You know, I don't know that God has a favorite. Like, his favorite is not the thing, his favorite is you. Like, his favorite is not the thing or the plan that he has for that person. His favorite is the person themselves and imparting all of himself and all of the healing and identity of the kingdom, all of the salvation to them, all of it to you. We're not hoping they take one. We're hoping they take them all. And it honors us not when they take one and say, "Well, I don't want to diminish this one by taking the others." It it magnifies us. It amplifies our grace upon our children when they just receive and enjoy and take it all. And when they receive and enjoy and share it with their brothers and sisters. And when we have these great moments where we sit back and we see them laughing and enjoying their relationship with us and their relationship with each other. Because we've imparted to them the essence of who we are. And that's what this sozo is. It is Jesus' very identity. And he is imparting his identity of being completely whole being completely spiritually free, being completely safe, even in the middle of a storm, being completely okay, being surrounded by people who aren't okay on either extreme of being okay uh, or not okay because they're in radical sin or not okay because they're in religious legalism. He imparts that identity and all of that salvation to us and then through us. And so as I sign off, this episode a little bit long for today so thanks for riding with me and by the way share it pass it on to others in the show notes I'm going to put a link for you where you can get the healing workshop um, an episode uh, of seven videos uh, or a session of seven videos and the ebook to that absolutely free you can log on and learn more about what this healing thing is so it's just there in the show notes As you sign off, may the Lord bless you. May He keep you. May He be gracious to you. May you, as you go through this week, remember that salvation isn't just Jesus' name. It isn't just His um, nomenclature that we call Him. It is who He is. It is what He does. And He imparts the essence of that to you so that you can receive it, you can enjoy it, And then he expresses that through you. Go in peace.